a covenant is most precious to God, it's not just an agreement, but it's an agreement from God which contains His promises. Now, when we open up the Scripture, we see that there are numerous covenants in the Bible, one of which, and I would suggest to you, one of the most important covenants is a marriage covenant. The Bible reveals that marriage is just not a relationship, but a covenantal relationship. And with each covenant, there are expectations. There are terms. And this marriage covenant is a most powerful covenant. The benefits are numerous. And the question that we need to ask ourselves if we're married, wives, are you favorite? Are you faithful to that covenant? Men, are you faithful to that covenant? Well, take out your Bible and look with me to 1 Peter and chapter 3. Now, we really need to pay attention to word order. Because in many of your translations, they don't. They ignore it. And they ought not. It says here, remember this, likewise. Do you hear that? The first word, likewise. Then we see who he's addressing. He says, likewise, you wives. So he's speaking to women. It's a generic word for women, but in this context, there is no, in the biblical language, there is no separate word for wife. Context tells us whether we're speaking simply about a woman in a general sense or a wife. In this case, it's obvious that this should be understood as a wife. Again, likewise, the wives, submit yourself to one's own husband. Now, literally, it's plural because we're speaking about women in the plural, wives, and also their husbands. So we see, first and foremost, this term, again, submit. Submission is related to faith in God. We submit not because perhaps that other one deserves it, but because God commands us. And we need to answer a question. Is God's instructions, are his commandments going to influence my behavior? Too many believers, they set aside God's instructions. It's a lack of faithfulness. It's a doubting of what God has promised. So likewise, the wives submit to your own husbands and order that. Now he's making a promise. If you do, then. Do we believe that? And what is the objective? Wives, you can be a great spiritual influence on your husbands. The wife is going to set. The man may be the leader of the home, but it's the woman who is the great influencer. She is going to play a greater role in the spiritual condition of that, of that house. Even though the husband's the leader, the wife will be a greater source of influence. We're to see that in a moment. So in order that, also if there are certain ones, meaning their husbands, it's in the masculine. Even if there is a certain one who disobeys the word. So now we have a husband. The wife is a believer. The husband, spiritually, he is disobedient. Now, unfortunately... That seems to be much more normal than the other way. Is it not? I can attest that my wife and I, we meet many couples where we see the woman committed and the husband indifferent. Even if he says he's a believer, not always, but 
the vast majority of time, we see this. So it, we read, in order that even if some are disobedient to the word, that through the wife's conduct. Now, this is another example of this word. Do a study of it. You are going to see how many times it appears in this epistle. It tells us that conduct matter. Our behavior is important. So that through the wife's conduct, that without a word, I like that part. That without a word, he will be one. She, through her conduct, not, not speech, but behavior, she can bring a change, one that is pleasing to God, one that relates to victory. That's what this word means. That he can be one, meaning there can be a God-pleasing spiritual change in his life. How? It tells us, verse 2. Observing, that is when the husbands are observing in fear. Now, that means he's recognizing the wife demonstrating her fear, meaning God takes the priority of her life. She is walking in obedience, recognizing God in everything that she does. He's observing this. He has no, no other opportunity. They live together. He sees this fear and this pure conduct. That is your pure conduct, wife. Again, why is that word pure there? Do you remember something? Last night we talked about these two Hebrew terms. Tohor ve tumah. Tumah is defiled. God looks upon that which is defiled and he says, based upon his character, his holiness, he cannot bless it. It goes against his character. But purity, purity brings about God's blessing. So she behaves in this pure conduct. God says, I see that and I will move and I will bring a change. God brings the change, but the source of it is her conduct. She can have great spiritual influence. Now, we're going to see more about the wife in a moment. Verse 3. This influence, it is not from the external. All too often, we see that the enemy gets one thinking about the external. That doesn't interest God. God wants to see the internal. What's going on spiritually in her life? So he says, let it not be the exterior. And then he says, he gives an example. The braiding of hair. Now this does not mean that if you braid your hair, you're in disobedience. The context is, this is not going to be the source that brings about spiritual change, the external. So he gives an example, a few. Not the braiding of hair, that's not going to solve the problem. Not wrapping around yourself gold, nor adoring with, with garments. So he's going through a variety of things that are external. The exterior. If you want an internal change in your husband, it's not going to be seen in your exterior. It's going to be based upon a conduct that is pleasing to God based upon, hear this, based upon God's instructions. When one submits to God's instructions, recognizing this is his word unto me, I must, not just must, 
I want to apply it to my life because I recognize God is good. God is kind. We talked about this. Therefore, she submits to God that submission is manifested in her marital relationship with her husband. And what happens? We see that there's a change. Now he gets more specific. Look at verse 4. Not the external, we learn that, but the hidden things of the human heart. Now, whenever we see that concept of heart in the Bible, thoughts should come into our mind as a man thinks in his heart. So it begins with thinking properly, having that mind of Messiah, and always thinking properly is an outcome of knowing the truth of God. So we see here, but on that hidden thing, of the human heart in that which is incorruptible. Now, that's another term. Has it not appeared many times? That which is incorruptible. That is a kingdom connection. She's thinking about kingdom truth. She's walking in kingdom truth, not focused on this world, but on what is going to be the spiritual condition of her family, of this marital relationship for eternity. What's going to be the outcome of this marriage? Now, people are quick to say, well, we're not married in the kingdom. That's true. But your marriage will indeed influence your kingdom experience. That's a fact. Your marriage is going to influence your kingdom experience. Remember what we talked about. You are foolish. You are in disobedience. If your mindset is, just so I'm in the kingdom, that's good enough for me. That's disobedience. That's not the right way of thinking. There are degrees of kingdom experience. God commands us through his son that we want to be great in the kingdom. That's not pride, that's humility. We want to be someone that God is well pleased with. You can only have that uh, come about through humility. So on the hidden things of the human heart and that which is incorruptible, which is a, a gracious or a gentle and quiet spirit, that gentle and quiet spirit is, he says, before God, what does your Bible say? Very precious. Interesting, that word. It's really two Greek words put together. It's that word that we've come across many times. It's the objective. It's that same word when Messiah says, it's finished. Several times we see it in this first epistle of Peter. It's the objective. It is the goal. It is the point. And then we see the word that, that comes before it is a word for much or many. What God is saying is this. When you behave according to my truth, when you follow my instructions, wives, you are going to see the end result being much, much what you had hoped for. When the scripture speaks about giving us the desires of our heart, God is going to give us righteous desires, his desires, which are the best. And then we, in obedience, can experience the fulfillment of that. And you know what he's really telling us when he says it's very precious? He's telling us that it satisfies greatly. When we walk in obedience, following the instruction of God, we are going to know satisfaction. Now, remember, all of this is not just for now, but there's kingdom implications. Kingdom implications are eternal. That's what he wants us to realize about this. Verse 5, we have an example. For thusly. 
For thus, formerly, also, the women, not just any women, but it says, holy women, or holy wives, we could translate it. Those who were hoping, hoping in God, this is how they adored themselves. Now, why the word holy? Holy is related to purpose. They followed the purpose. These holy wise followed the purpose of God. And God moved in a very mighty way. So thus, holy wives also, the ones whose hope was in God, this is how they adorned themselves, submitting to one's own husband. And here's the example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, Lord, him she called. That's what it says. She called him Lord. Why? She recognized God's authority in this marital relationship. And my, what came from that family? Was it perfect? No. Did it have problems? Yes, but it is a kingdom family. When God speaks about the seed of Abraham, he's speaking about a kingdom heritage. And it began with these two individuals, Abraham and Sarah. She was one who recognized authority, foundation. You, he says, speaking to believers, you have become a child doing what? Again, doing good work and not fearful. What does that mean? Not being moved from the instructions of God. Now, we see that word fear in the Old Testament oftentimes relating to priority putting God above all things and having all things subjected to him. But here, in the Greek, it's speaking about not being moved from the instructions of God, not allowing something to influence you and move you away from where God has commanded you to be. And then we have at the end, it says, not fearing. And then we see a word for not having concern. That's literally what it means. Not having any type of feelings of doubt or confusion. You are believing. God says do this and you are fully convinced and nothing that goes on turns you away, sways you from this instruction. Why? Well, I like what one commentator said. This is because this godly woman, she is walking in trust. She has discerned God is trustworthy. And he would never say something that is not the very best. Do you believe that? Do you honestly trust God by putting his truth into your life? Or do you doubt? some things do you hinder his work because you have that earthly concern what if maybe that was good then but not today in that culture but not in mine we find that these holy wives didn't think this way now the instructions are not so difficult to understand at least and then we see something else. When we look at what God is saying to the wives, he's saying here that if you submit, you're inviting me to go to work. It's only when we obey that God says, I'll get involved. If we're waiting for God to get involved until then we'll obey, it won't happen. Look now to verse, verse 7. Now we're leaving the woman and we're moving on to the husband. 
We'll do this very quickly. <laughs> Husbands, likewise. Do you see a change? When you go to verse 1, it says, likewise, the wives. But here, the orders change. Husbands, likewise. Now, your Bible may put it in the same order. It ought not. It's different. And what that shows is there's a difference between men and women in every sense. Physically, spiritually, everything. And this change of order is recognizing this. God knows these things. And God gives instructions because he knows how different we are. How we look at things very, very differently. So he says, husbands, likewise, dwelling according to knowledge. You're going to dwell with. We had that prefix. Not just dwelling, but dwelling with. Meaning dwelling with your wife. And he says, do so with knowledge. I'm lost. What is he talking about with knowledge? What do I need to know? Now, I know for the 35 years there's something missing in what I know or don't know. But I still have not learned what it is. How can I dwell with her with knowledge? What does that mean practically? Well, if you don't know, you just keep reading, right? So he says, husbands likewise dwell with, meaning your wife, according to knowledge as, this is interesting, as the weaker vessel. Weaker how? I mean, strength, power? Probably not speaking in a physical sense. Now, I've heard many people, and I may have said it as well because I repeat when I ought to study and learn. But many people say this means that she is more precious. Weaker in the sense of fragile. But here's the problem. This word appears numerous times throughout the New Testament. And when you look at it, the basic meaning is weak, meaning not at full strength. There's something that is affecting. And if you do a study of this word, yes, it's frequently translated weak, but more often than not, it's translated sick. Check it out. So it says, I'm beginning to learn, says here, husbands likewise dwell with, dwell with your wives according to knowledge as she is a sick vessel. Literally. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, I like to be literal. I like to say, why is God using this word? There's got to be more to it than just she's sick. When you look at this word, you will find that, that this concept of sick is always recognized when someone, when this word, Athenus, is used. It is always recognized, the context, it's being recognized that there is a problem. And here's what the Scripture is revealing. Women tend to be much more spiritually sensitive. See, when I say I'm sick, you know what that means? I have a problem in my health. My body, when it's sick, is telling me there's something wrong, right? I have a cough, I have a sore throat, I have pain, I'm sick, there's a problem. Now, men tend to be very difficult to communicate. Many times, my wife will say something, I think he insulted you. I say, really? I, I didn't hear that. We just are not paying attention. We go through life 
not really thinking all that much. Now, I'm not trying to be humorous at all. I'm very, very serious. If I ask my wife, what are you thinking? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe how long she can tell me about what she's thinking. This is not supposed to be humorous. I can think about nothing all day long. And what we see here is that she is recognized. And when it says that she is a vessel of weakness, she is recognizing the problem that men, we don't. We don't. There's been numerous times. Now, we know, and I'll mention later on, we all know that a wife, biblically going back to the Torah, she is a helpmate. She is there to help me. Now, I believe when it says dwell with her with knowledge, we need to remember that. God has, by creation, equipped the woman to assist us men. And the problem is, and it causes big problems in a relationship, when I don't recognize that, that I don't live with that knowledge. That she, by nature, God created her to help me. That's how she's built, to want to assist. And she is more sensitive, the wife is. So when there's problems, when there's something that's risky, when there's something that's dangerous, something that's not good, she senses it, and we're oblivious to it, oblivious. And then she wants to help me, and instead of dwelling with her in knowledge, when she is saying, I don't think this is good. I don't think this one has your best interest or God's will in his heart. What do we do? We see that as just putting a wrench in our plans. Because I don't know about you guys, but for me, once I say, yes, this is my plan, I hate to change it. Hate to change it. Don't throw a wrench in what I want to do. But she's equipped to say there's problems. So when it says that she's a sick vessel, it means that she recognizes where the problems are. She's equipped in order to help us. And what do we do? We ignore it or worse, we get angry when she does her job and warns us. We don't see it as that. We see it as usurping authority annoying us, insulting us. You don't think if I thought this, I would. And it's all because we're not dwelling with the proper knowledge. So she is a vessel that is able to discern better than me, better than you, men. Your wife is better able to see. Now, of course, we're talking about believers here. A believing wife. She is better able to see the attacks of the enemy coming, the enemy laying his foundation to bring hardship, bring discomfort, bring defeat into my life, into our home, into our business, into everything that's connected to our family. And all too often, we don't dwell with that knowledge, knowing why she's responding the way she is to situations. And then notice what he says. After saying that she's the weak vessel, it says, and we have an interesting term. Now, if you pay attention, this is the word nomos. It's in a verbal form. Nomos is the word for, many of you know, law, the law of God, nomos. Now, this is the verbal form. We can't think of that in English. But it's setting down these standards. When this term nomos is in a law, in a verbal form, it's saying this is the measure. This is how it should be. And so he's telling us, men, that we need to recognize the standards, what God has put down, what God has set in order in this relationship, how he has made her. For what purpose? And if we do so, what are we going to do? What's the next word? Honor. 
Now, I've read a couple books about marriage. And it always talks about the man's need to be honored by his wife. But when we look at the Bible, we see that the man needs to demonstrate that he has honor for his wife. Isn't that what this is saying? Don't always think of things from a secular perspective. What's so dangerous today is in many congregations, instead of using this book, they're going to other books. They're studying other materials rather than simply the Scripture. And many times these other books are not giving biblical truth. In fact, they're giving just the opposite. We are commanded biblically. What God tells us is that we need to portion out to the wife, the Scripture says, that we are called to give honor. Why? Well, we're in this relationship together. Why do I know that? Keep reading. He says, as also, this is a word of emphasis here, as even recognize that she is a joint heir, we inherit. We may not be married in the kingdom, but when it comes to my inheritance and her inheritance, there's a joint relationship. He tells us that. We are joint heirs of the grace of life. Here again, the grace of life, living now for what we're going to receive then in the kingdom. For, why? Well, we have a word, ace. Ace means the word of purpose. Now, how many believe that prayer can really change lives? The problem is this. If there's a problem in my marital relationship, the scripture tells us plainly, it hinders my prayer. What is that telling me? God is removing himself from me. We see a principle, a law spiritually, that when we are not submitting to his instructions, when I'm not dwelling with her in that type of knowledge, recognizing that we're joint heirs, that we're in it together, that God's provided her to help me in this quest of serving God together. When I don't recognize that, it says here that that hinders your prayers, my prayers to God. Meaning God stops listening. This marital covenant is of the greatest importance. It is a powerful tool. And no one knows that better than who? The enemy. And that's why we see so frequently outside the believing community and inside the believing community, marriages in shambles. It takes two, but one can bring about a change. One's obedience can get God going in that relationship and changing your spouse in a way that you could never do so. It's all a question of whether we're going to doubt what we're studying or accept it as truth. Verse 8. But to the end, now he's speaking about a summary. What is God summarizing here? How we need to think and thoughts lead to actions. He says, all, meaning all of us, we need to think. And the prefix to the word thinking is the word homo, meaning the same way. It's not as a believer, I think one way, you think another way. No. We all need to think in the same manner. What does that mean? We all need to have the mind of Messiah. Now, people talk about a marvelous uh, variety. Well, we may look very, very different. But when it comes to thinking, there needs to be unity, and there will be unity if truth is our foundation. One of the things I hear about this conference is how people find like-minded people. And how 
Desperately, people are seeking that. So here he tells us, the end, what is the objective, that same word, is that all, all people, all believers at least, that we think the same way and that we, your Bible may say, are sympathetic. But when you look, what does sympathetic mean? That we suffer together. So many times, when you demonstrate that someone else's pain, that you care for that. That that hurts you as well. When you truly have love, and if you love that person, their sorrow does indeed become your sorrow. So it says, have this same mindset. Be sympathetic, suffer with one another. And then he has that brotherly love and a good compassion. That's literally what it says, the word for compassion. But it's, there's a couple different words for compassion. This is feeling it in the pit of your stomach. It hurts, but it brings about a good outcome. Because having this type of good compassion prepares you, it enables you to do ministry. To really have a godly influence on someone else. So we have good compassion. And the last word, now here's a difference. If you're following the Nestle Allen Greek text, it will probably say, does your Bible say humility? But the Texas Receptus has, again, a word that speaks about thanking in a loving manner. Thanking in a way that shows a commitment. This word love involves demonstrating a commitment to another. Share a very brief testimony. I'm always blessed by, by Lester, his leading of worship, but, but also him and those who serve with him in the prayer room. I remember it was the first year that we had that prayer room, and I'm embarrassed to say it took us way too long to, to come up with that idea. And I remember what one person told me. The conference was over. We were leaving about five, six hours afterwards. And this person was also checking out, going to the airport and said, this conference ministered to her so much. I said, why? She said, it was the first time in her life that anyone has ever prayed for her. Now, in one sense, that's, that's so sad. But I don't think it's so abnormal. And she was just so touched and changed because someone prayed for her. And this is what this word is speaking about. That we behave in a way that we think in a loving, caring manner that shows commitment. And I don't think that she ever experienced someone that was truly committed. And what's really marvelous is that the one who prayed for her never knew her until that moment. But that person was able to minister to her in a mighty, mighty way. Because that person demonstrated to her that they cared. We go on, look at verse 9. Not rendering Evil for evil, that's so easy to do. Or insult for insult. But, and contrary to that. Now that, those things come natural to us. I mean, I've seen children just go up and push someone. Not hard, just, what does that other kid do? Push right back. It's human nature. We're not called to live according to human nature. But a spiritual change comes upon us when we live contrary to that which is natural. And that's what he's talking about here. 
not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But in contrast to that, then we have the word contrary to. What do we do? Always, always, we are called to be a blessing. Now, that does not mean that we always do what someone else wants, but we always do what God wants for that person. We always want to be a godly influence in seeing God's purposes, plans begin in that person's life. So he says, be a blessing. Why? He tells us, knowing that for this you were called. Now, a very common question that we get from people is, what do you think God wants to do with my life? We know here, God wants to use you to be a blessing to others. And here's the takeaway for you. Until you become committed to that, those those fine personal plans for your life, God's not going to reveal. It's only after you become a blessing to others that you're committed to that, God is going to reveal to you His plan his purpose, his objective for your life. And if you're not wanting to be a blessing to others, you're not understanding for what you've been called. He tells us. I mean, you don't have to interpret it, you just read it. He tells us, knowing, the scripture tells us, knowing that for this, this purpose, you have been called in order That you inherit blessing. So if I want to inherit blessing, I need to be blessing. So simple. See, God's principles are not difficult. God's truth is not necessarily so profound, so so difficult. You know, what I like is what Charles Stanley says. When he says, why would God want to make it difficult for us? He wants to give us his truth. Truth that a child can understand. So that we put it into practice. It's not difficult. It's clear what's difficult is being committed to it. And if it's difficult, it's because of a doubt in our mind. And then he says, look on to verse 10. For the one who desires life. Is that describing you? Do you desire life? Well, he tells us. See, again, it's easy to say, yes, I do. You just said it. I'm not so sure. Here's the proof. The one who desires life, what does he or she do? Loves. Life is found, that abundant life. Yes, Messiah came to give us life and life abundantly, but we receive that not just because we say yes to him. It's because we hear his teaching. We apply it to our life. And we love. When he says, I give you an example, not a new law, but an old law, he says, it's to love others. So he says, the one who desires life loves. And what does he love? To see a good day. Now, it doesn't just have to be your good day. Why do I know that? What are we called to be? What did we learn? A blessing. So I want to see if I'm really pursuing life, the life that God wants me to live. I am going to rejoice. I am going to love when I see a good day for someone else. Here's what happens. A good thing happens to another person. What do we say? Not out loud, we just think it. Why then? Why then? I've been here longer. I work harder. I I deserve it more. We don't simply rejoice for the good things of other people. And if that, and we all feel that at times, 
that manifests that we're not living the life, being the blessing that God has saved us to be. We should love to see a good day. Then he says, and to guard his tongue. Don't know why he doesn't say her tongue too, but to guard his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Another important principle is this. When I say something that's deceitful, God hears it, but you know who else hears it? The enemy. And that gives him a stronghold over us. It puts us at a spiritual disadvantage. Now, there's a lot of false teaching about speaking, what comes out of your mouth. But I can tell you, when you speak deceit, when there's something that is false, the enemy hears and responds. And that disobedience, that lie, that sin puts you in spiritual weakness so that you will be dominated by that enemy. Verse 11. What are we called to do? He says, turning, let that one turn from evil and do good. What's good? The will of God. Always pursue the will of God. Now, there's another principle here. Because I hear all the time, and we all identify with this. Doing what is right. That's hard. I'm constantly being pulled back into my old man. Into what I know I ought not do, but I go back. I don't know why God doesn't give me victory over that. You have the answer here. God is not going to give victory until you turn away from evil. And how do you do that? Just not turning away from evil, but when you begin to pursue and do that which is good. Same principle. God is not going to reveal to you his personal plan for your life until you begin to do that which is good. If you won't do the general will of God, that he teaches all of his people to do. If you're not committed to that, he's not going to show you that personal private plan that he has for your life. So he says, do good, seeking peace. That's the fulfillment of God's will. Seeking to fulfill God's will and doing what? He says, pursuing it. Now, this is the same word if it's used in a negative sense of persecuting. It's the idea of someone following after. A good biblical example of that is King Shaul when he was pursuing David. Pretty intense. Years Saul pursued David. So in an alternate way, we're called to pursue peace, meaning to be tenacious for the will of God. And then he says, verse 12, our last verse. Because the eyes of God. Does your Bible say God? No. The Lord. What's the difference? We need to recognize him as Lord. Why? With Lord comes that authority. That's what that word emphasizes. Because the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ear is to their prayer. But, in contrast to that, the face of the Lord is against evil doing. Those who do evil. So, God, it's not a, an issue of who you are. It's an issue of what you are doing. A covenant, that new covenant, positions us to do what is right. We now have access to the provision of God to serve Him. But God looks at behavior again. The context is not 
how one is saved. The context is this. Am I walking and living out sanctification, which brings about a holy change, whereby I become committed to the purpose of God so that I can obey God's will and I can demonstrate that which is good. I can see his glory manifested. And with that power of his glory comes God blessing that situation, blessing that other individual. And I'll close this session with this. Many of you know this. But there's greater joy in a person's life from being a blessing than receiving a blessing. Just that's, that's factual. There is greater joy, a greater satisfaction when you know God uses you to be a blessing to someone else. It's a greater joy than when you are the recipient of God's blessing. And the question is this. Are we going to be wise enough to make these decisions that he's spoken of? Are we going to make decisions, applying and implementing them in our life in order that we can be a blessing to others? That's where the power begins to be released. That's when the insight, the revelation, God gives us that perspective. And that's when we see change beginning around us, in our children, in our grandchildren, in our spouse, in our situation. God is able to change the situation like that. But he's not going to violate his spiritual laws, what he has set up in his word. He's not going to violate them. And God is never in a hurry. God is never impatient. God does not change. Stop arguing with God. Stop doubting God. Take his word. You can understand it. Apply it to your life. And you'll be amazed of the godly change that will follow. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning. Products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.